Alrighty, Amos chapter 8, verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy, and bring the proof of the land to an end, the portrait of the land of the land to the end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile, and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. May God bless the reading of his word. Um, So we're continuing on through Amos, and... I believe I say this later, but the first three verses are an end to a a few other visions that happened in chapter 7. And then Amos continues on in chapter 8 with a new set of visions and prophecies against the people of Israel. Um, And so that's what we're seeing today. So let's go ahead, verse 1. This is what the Lord God has shown me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. We now see another vision, again given to Amos. And as we noted just recently and a few weeks back, this vision coordinates with chapter 7. In chapter 7, we saw three visions followed by that narrative with Amaziah. The first and the second vision each have Amos seeing a judgment. Then he interceded on behalf of the people. And then God relented on that judgment. The third vision, however, has Amos seeing the vision. And as we recall, that was a wall made of tin. Um, God questioning Amos like he does here. And then Amos answers. And then God judges the people without any intercession. Now, this fourth vision is exactly like the third vision in that way. So, what is it that Amos is shown this time? We see it as a basket of summer fruit. The vision of the summer fruit itself is not necessarily the focus. Instead, it is meant to lead the conversation onward. And we see this as Amos is asked what he sees, which he says, a basket of summer fruit. Yet, this leaves us to question, what then is the focus The answer comes from God himself, which is when we read, The end has come upon my people Israel. When the Lord says, the end, it is actually a play on words with summer fruit. You see, in Hebrew, the two words sound identical. They sound exactly alike. Thus, the summer fruit represents the end of the people of Israel, with God informing Amos that he will never again pass by them, The result of such destruction will be that the songs which were sung in the temple 
in fact, would turn from worship to wailing. This also is likely a response to Amaziah then. And as we recall from the previous chapter, Amaziah claimed that Bethel was the temple for the kingdom. And Amos' prophecy recognizes that this same temple will be destroyed. The devastation which is to come is complete because it is declared by the Lord. But it is also seen in abundance with the statement, So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. We can clearly see the judgment which is to come will be one filled with sorrow, destruction, and even death. Now verse 4. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy food for silver, buy the poor for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the chaff chaff with the wheat. We now begin a new focus, which will last the rest of the chapter. This oracle focuses on those who trample on the needy. To trample on the needy indicates those who would exploit those who are on lower social status. As we have seen in previous oracles, during this time in Israel, there were really two social classes, the rich and then the poor. The rich continue to exploit the poor, in such a way which caused them harm. It caused them to be unable to get out of being poor. We see this, as the oracle says, to bring the poor of the land to an end. In this way, the poor were dying. They were dying of starvation. They were selling themselves into slavery in order to pay off their debts. Um, They had a lack of proper food and clothing. The reason for these conditions rests on how the rich were manipulating the poor and taking advantage of them which is a direct violation of the law in which the poor and the needy were meant to be watched over and cared for. Now this leads to verse 5, which focuses on their thought process. We notice they say, When will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain in the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale? The new moon was a religious covenant holiday, and the Sabbath is the day of rest. In this, we see that they observe the religious days and holiday. However, notice that their attention, where it's located. Even though they rightly do not engage in trading, um, selling, bartering, or business, they only care for the religious days to end so that they can continue to make a profit. We also notice that they deal corruptly. They shrunk the ephah, which was a standard weight. It would be like me giving you a gallon of milk with a gallon clearly marked on the bottle, only the bottle itself contained less than a true gallon. They also did this kind of immoral business practice with overweighting the shekel. In this way, the buyer thought that they were uh, getting more than they really were when the shekel was weighted against them. Finally, they dealt deceitfully with false balances, doing this Uh, by purposefully making the scales inaccurate. It's like if you were to go over to uh, Tops and when they weighed up one of your items, it was purposefully heavier than what it said. That's what they were doing. In these ways, they continued to make a profit then in deceitful ways. What was the goal? What was the purpose of using such unethical uh, business practices? 
And that was to continue to get rich by buying the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. In other words, these marginalized people were being treated unfairly by these upper-class citizens, being extorted. And then the rich would use the money that they had acquired from these less fortunate to buy them into slavery, thus increasing their influence and their profit. The final atrocity which Amos speaks of is the selling of chaff with the grain. Um, These individuals were willing to sell grain mixed with chaff which these poor individuals would be willing to pay for. Um, If we were to use the milk metaphor again, it would be like watering down milk. Or using a food analogy, it would be like getting a box of cereal and inside you found not only the good, uh, good cereal, but also the inedible burnt stuff that they just threw in with it. So in this way, you would pay for something while not receiving what it is that you actually paid for. Now, verses 7 and 8. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile, and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? At this point, we experience the response of God to these atrocities. We notice that the Lord swears by the pride of Jacob, In a minor way, it represents God swearing by the literal pride of the people which they have for themselves. And as we've seen previously in Amos, with their military success, they thought very highly of themselves. Yet, the greater focus of the oath is that God is swearing on the land of Israel itself. For this is where the nations took their greatest pride in ages past. It was on their sacred land. What oath does he swear That he will never forget their deeds. God will not forget the way the rich, the elite, have mishandled the poor. The way they have let such injustice play forth. Not only do we consider the grave injustice against the poor, but their business practices and their hearts. As such, God will not simply gloss over the evil, nor forget it. Instead, he will remember it. And on this day will bring forth an accounting for their deeds through judgment. The judgment will be severe as we learn in verse 8. The rhetorical question is asked, shall not the land tremble on this account? Indeed, the judgment will be from the land itself. As one commentator said, the land will become like a death trap for the people. This does not necessarily mean literal earthquakes, but a figure of speech which recognizes the severity of the oncoming judgment. Those who possess the land will feel the effects. In fact, there will be mourning by those who dwell in the land. Such devastation will be wrought upon it that it will be like the rise of the Nile, which rises and falls throughout the year. As such, again, we see the powerful judgment, where God will use their prized land even against them in his judgment. Now, there are two main points to these verses we went over. The first three verses and the oracles and the narrative of the previous uh, chapter. And with it comes the recognition of judgment. The rest of the verses focus on a new set of oracles and judgments against the people. Reflecting back on the society which is riddled in sin. Where the rich openly oppress the poor. As such the society itself will crumble. 
and all that they hold dear will face judgment for their darkness. Now this leads to a few applications. And in all honesty, all three of these really go together. And we'll see that in, in, a, in a way. The first is immoral practices. Oftentimes we may wonder how the scriptures can speak to us today. In this particular case, we see there is clear evidence on the way the scriptures may speak in our particular society. As we look around, we see a society in which the capitalist framework wins the day. Buy low, sell high. The goal is profit, usually by any means. Hopefully those means are legal, though as we have seen many times in the news, that's not always the case. So what is our response to this? What is the Christian response to this concept of profit by any means? Do Christians have a response? Should we have a response? This is one of those times we need to remember that Christianity itself is a worldview, which means that it informs us of the world around us. All too often we can fall into the trap that our faith is inward only, affecting only ourselves or at most our families. This, however, is not true. Our belief in Christ should dictate everything in our lives, including our business practices and economics. This should not make us think that only, it only affects those who own a business. Sorry, Mike, I'm not picking on you. Instead, it recognizes that in Christ we have a view of business and economics which is separate from the world. A view in which we should be willing to present to the world regardless if we are business owners or not. Our business owners are the ones who should practice out what it is that we know our businesses should be under Christ. Again, that leads us to the question, what is our response to profit by any means? Or is this an acceptable position to maintain? Is it acceptable for Christians to endorse, let's say, slave labor in another country because it brings greater profit? Should we accept that? Should we endorse that? Should we accept slave labor here in America because it brings overall greater profit? I would argue no. Here in Amos, we see those who are practicing such business models. They are willing to trample on anyone in order to get their way. In this way, those who work for them become slaves, and those who buy do not receive the goods that they were even expecting. In response to such, Christians should recognize we are not to act this way. The individuals who are doing these things are not loving their neighbors or the poor among them. Instead, they are taking clear advantage of such individuals for their own personal wealth and personal gain. In Christ, however, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are not to take advantage of others for personal gain, but to love others. Thus, what we see with such individuals is a lack of love for their fellow humans and their fellow Israelites. Their immorality stems from a love of self, which undermines any other kind of love. It is because we understand humans as being made in the image of God that we should stand against such practices in our own society. We should be the first to rise against immoral business practices, while at the same time encouraging our business owners to rise against immoral practices, which lead to profit above everything else. Simply put, humans in particular are not a commodity to be bought or sold. 
Humans are not to be trampled on in order for others to get ahead and farther along. Humans have dignity, have worth, and because of our origins, they have it. Thus, we should be firm against those who would treat humans as less than human, whatever that may look like. That is where this final point leads. It starts with immoral business practices. However, when we get to the heart of the matter, it really comes from a lack of love for others. While the world may not have a reason to love others, the world does not have a reason to sacrifice profit for the sake of a person. We as Christians do. Recognizing that each person we encounter is worth far more than great profit in this world. So it is, we can learn from the prophecies here in Amos to stand firm against darkness, which would manipulate our fellow man for the sake of a win or for the sake of profit. Though the world would say prophet is king, we know Christ is king. And the only prophet which lasts is that which glorifies him most. And it glorifies God to love our neighbors as ourselves. And to stand against all immoral practices, business or otherwise, that would manipulate our fellow humans, causing them to fall into disaster in this life. Now this naturally, I would say, leads to the next point which is a broken religion. When we were reading in today's passage, we should all have a moment to scratch our heads and wonder, how is it that these individuals could appear so religious and yet be judged by God? Consider again, these individuals practiced the holy days. They remembered the Sabbath. And they remembered the new moon. Part of the problem is, What we just discussed, their immoral business practices which stems from a lack of love for their fellow humans and countrymen. However, it runs deeper than this. For these individuals were those who appeared to be religious. These were individuals who in our day would go to church, who would worship, who would seem like everything an upstanding individual would within our communities and societies would look like. And yet something is terribly wrong deep within them, deep down. Or another example would be those who claim to follow Christ. Those who have declared Jesus as Lord with their lips and then never actually live for him. When asked if they are believers, however, they will say that they are. Again, we see the same kind of religious belief. In one sense, they have done what's right. And in another sense, they haven't even come close to getting it. Such individuals are like those in Amos' day. Replace Sunday worship with Sabbath worship. And you have the same people, those who appear to be believers, but in reality they are not. And we can know they are not by their lifestyles, their immorality or their morality and their beliefs. In other words, there are individuals who in one sense appear to be living rightly, but when you look at the full picture, they have no real relationship with God. That is where this comes into focus. If the previous point on how immoral business dealings or treating others with immorality is a lack of love for one's fellow human, then this point is a lack of love for God himself. In other words, the people in Amos' day were breaking the very two commandments which Christ said all the law hangs. The first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. How is it 
that they are not loving their God. They are, after all, still obeying the commandments in some respect. They are still keeping the Sabbath and keeping the New Moon Festival. Isn't that enough? The answer throughout the Scriptures is no. It is not enough to be simply doing these acts because God does not want pieces. He doesn't want parts of us, but all of us. All of who we are to be giving over to Him in love. We see this clearly in what they believe, in their morality or lifestyle, in their relationships. They believe they are right with God. They are being completely immoral in their lifestyles, and they are treating others as worthless, having no dignity. These, if we may remember, are all the signs we find in First John of those who are not in Christ. And unfortunately, in our own broader society, we see these things occurring. But even more sorrowful is that it happens within our own congregations all the time. Again, the issue is that they have a broken religious system. Their religion, which claims to be following God, is really not. There is no real love for God. For if you notice, they do not even focus on God during the Sabbath or the New Moon Festival. Instead, they are focusing on the next day when they can continue to reap the profits of their unjust gain. God is not their focus. This is when we have to examine ourselves to make sure that we are not falling into the same broken religious trap that those in ancient Israel fell into. Simply put, we must make sure that we are not like those in ancient Israel who went to the temples just to make themselves look good or to try to convince themselves that they are right with God. We cannot come to church just for a pat on the back for being good. Instead, we are to come to church for one purpose, and that is the glory of God. To learn together from the Word in order to encourage each other in that Word, and to walk with one another in love as we worship our God with our songs, but also with our minds and with our hearts. It is easy to fall into this moralistic understanding of our God, when we try to be moral in a few places and think it's okay. But as we have seen, such morality will not lead to God. In fact, it will fall very short of what God truly desires of us, which is to give all of ourselves over to Him in all things. We saw what that meant for relationships, how we treat others, and how we understand business practices. However, it also comes right back here to our own hearts. Because for all of humanity, that is the first real problem. Our hearts need transformed to be given over to God completely. This week I read this um, from a book and it seemed fitting. And And what the author said was, The repentance to which a Christian is called is a continuous and lifelong process. While conversion begins, as everything in history does, at some point in time, the process of conversion is not completed until every aspect of the human personality is driven out into the light of God's severe mercy, judged and renewed. Conversion proceeds layer by layer, relationship by relationship, here a little, there a little, until the whole personality, and not merely one side of it, has been recreated by God. Conversion refers not only to the initial movement of faith, no matter how dramatic or revolutionary it may seem, but to the whole life of the believer 
and the network of relationships in which that life is entangled, personal, familial, social, economic, and political. And that comes from David Steinmetz in Taking the Long View. If this regeneration, this conversion, does not occur, then we will continue to be dead in our sin. We will continue to be like a leper who is given fancy clothes. But will, what will heal us is not what we wear, though, on the outside. Instead, what will heal us is what takes away our epidemic and makes us new. And thank God, for he has given us Jesus Christ, and it is through Jesus we know that all things can be made new. So the point of this is to remember the first and greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. In this way, we are called to give all of ourselves over to God, so that all things are held captive to him above all, to not be like ancient Israel in their brokenness, but to be transformed by God Almighty. Now the third point, and this leads to another significant point, which we have come across in today's text, and that is judgment. Because of the lack of love for God and their lack of love for their fellow man, the people in Amos' day will face judgment. However, if you notice, there are two interesting facets of judgment. The first is against humanity, or the people, and the second concerns the land. And so I want to consider these for a second. When it comes to judgment against humanity, we understand that it can lead to death. Such judgments, when God makes them, leads to many bodies, or can lead to many bodies, as Amos predicts. As we remember, such judgment from God does not begin as judgment, but instead comes after much grace and much patience from God, which ultimately is rejected by humanity as we do not turn in repentance and faith. As such, humanity experiences judgments. The greatest judgment to befall will be at the end, before the great white throne which all humanity will face. Such judgment will be a terrifying one. In fact, let's consider what we read in Revelation. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away. And no one, or no place, was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, ultimately, this passage from Revelation 20 shows us the final judgment which is to take place, where all human roads lead, and that is before the throne of God. And we also notice the terrifying thing is how all of creation fled. I mean, it was terrifying even for creation that it runs away from this judgment. So the question is, what leads to judgment? And the answer is faithlessness and unrepentance. That is, when we do not place our faith in God and when we do not bear good fruit in our lives. Good fruit, as we know, is not what makes us righteous before God. Instead, good fruit is the result of true faith. Thus, if those who have, um, we have looked at previously had true faith in God, 
then they would be loving God and loving others as well, and then they would not have to face judgment. Now, most of us have already considered human judgment. We know it is going to happen. We know those who remain in their sin without remorse or um, repentance will face judgment. We know it, we understand it, and in many ways we see it rather clearly when we consider the truly abominable people of the world, such as the leaders of the Third Reich, or those who promote genocide and darkness in general. However, there is something else to consider when it comes to judgment. And that is the response of the land. Now I know some of you might be wondering, what on earth am I talking about? Why is the land so important? Well, consider what we read in Amos today, how the land itself is used to judge the people, how the land itself can display the evidence of the judgment of God. But consider it further. We also know that the psalmist says, and that is that the heavens declare the glory of God. And in Isaiah 55, a beautiful passage, we read, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Consider the difference in this passage about the land versus the one in Amos. Consider the beauty of this passage. The land itself will praise God. The land praises God, blesses God even, like a processional before us. There can be no doubt that nature itself belongs to God, and nature itself is good as it shows us the majesty, the glory, the wisdom, the knowledge of our great God. This reminds me of a time when I was struggling deeply. I know, you're like, what? Many of you know that at times I can follow those who have gone before me. I can come into depression and hopelessness. And a few years back, I was in such a state. Just in, it was just a darkness of the soul. One day, I decided that I needed to take a walk. And to get out, so I decided to walk up, up the mountain, because we were living up on a hill at the time. And in that time, I wept. I cried out to God for peace, for understanding during this tumultuous um, experience that I was in. I decided to go up on one of the gas lines, and I just stood there. I stared off into the valley below me, and I looked up at the sky. And that evening, as evening was approaching, and as I stood, I saw the first stars appear. In all of this, I was struck with the wonder and majesty of God. It wasn't nature itself which was calling me to worship it. Instead, nature was calling me to recognize the awesome God which had created it. So from this moment of being around this, I felt the first moments of peace that I could remember in a long, long time. I worshipped on that mountainside, praising God, weeping no longer tears of sorrow, but tears of relief and peace. I suspect that is the closest experience I have personally had with that passage from Isaiah coming true, right before my eyes. And I'm sure many of you have been out in nature and all of a sudden, peace just comes over you. Yet nature 
can also quake with judgment as well. It can lead us to God in one of two ways. One is a way of peace and the other is a way of wrath. It can show us two different realities, the grace, the mercy, the peace of God, but it can also show us his judgment. Thus, we are led with a warning from today's passage to recognize judgment. Consider this passage from Jeremiah. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away because they said, He will not see our latter end. Even the land can cry out to God because of atrocities. So we recognize this, that God is the God of the land. He is the God of the sea. And when he casts his judgment against men, the land, the seas itself, they testify to the judgment taking place just as it testifies against those who inhabit it. What shall we do then? We should warn people of judgment. We are to seek to remedy the atrocities through love. There will be a judgment to come for darkness, and while we live, it is our responsibility to stand against the darkness by holding our hearts before us in love. Though the world may be against us, We can be sure that God is not. That the nations of the world are a small thing compared to the great God in whom we place our trust, our faith, and our hope. And all of this leads to the gospel. For while there is judgment, and while there are atrocities against humanity, and a lack of love toward God, we can be sure that these things can be redeemed through Jesus Christ the Son of God. It is through Him that we are able to experience this world in all of its wonder and hear the song it sings, not a song of self, but a song of praise for the great Creator, God Himself. We can love this land, this nature, knowing that it is created just as we are created for the glory of God. For we are created in God's image. We are are made to communicate, to love, to be personable, to be diverse, to be imaginative, just as God is in all these things. And we see all these things in nature. We were made to seek and to know truth because God is truth. We were made to have ideals because God is the ideal. Thus there is dignity, sanctity, and worth to all human life because we are made in His image. Despite these wonderful things, we fell into sin and therefore death. We have lost the communication from God and have lost ourselves in the process. We seek gods of all kinds, and yet we ignore the God who is before us. We fall into the foolishness of the world and seek only the darkness. And therefore, we have a moral guilt before our God because of our sin, and that guilt must be paid. Yet God did not leave us in this state forever. Instead, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for those who repent and place their faith in him. For those who do are now justified before God, not by their works, but by the work of Jesus Christ. When we do place our faith in Jesus, his spirit comes upon us and transforms our lives from sin to godly, from unholy to holy, from unrighteous to righteous. 
Yet we recognize that it is not us, but the power of God in us, allowing us to live lives of repentance and faith in Christ. Yet for those who do not live in repentance and faith, there will be judgment. None can stand before God with only their deeds in hand, for even their greatest deeds are as filthy rags. Thus they will experience the judgment of God for all of their sins without Christ as an intercessor on their behalf. Yet there is another future for those who are obedient, where we will be glorified with Christ, when we will enter into a kingdom of peace with our God forever, a time when we can finally put away the struggles and spend an eternity being able to know this God whom has made himself known to us. Therefore, let us continue to be seekers of God. Let us be a people who do not turn away our love for others. And let us not be like those who worship God only with their lips. Instead, let us love others. And let us love our God with all that we have, with all that we are. Praising God for all that he has done, all that he has accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us go to Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your prophets who continue to speak to us today in our own circumstances, in our own societies, and who call to us even, who plead with us to turn, turn in repentance and faith, turn toward the God who is there, who has communicated to us the truth of the gospel. And so we ask that you would lead us further into your glory, And that you would lead us further into you, knowing that you are the end, you are the means, and it is by your grace that we stand. And it's in your Son that we pray. Amen.